0: The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I got a question I want you to share with um, someone uh, around you today. Actually, I'm going to preach longer, so I'm not going to ask you that question. This is what I'd love you to think about, but I'm not going to let you share it. You can share it at, at lunch. Would you think about... See, if I stopped, and I you take up my time, and I've decided I've got a little more I want to share in this message today. Um, but I'm curious if you think about a gift that you gave in uh, this season of giving, maybe in December or in the new year. What was the most satisfying gift that you gave? Was there a particular gift that you offered to someone that you love that offered? Great joy back to you. And then what would it look like for that gift to be multiplied, right? Not only to give a gift. One of my favorite things that I do in December, I eat at a taqueria. It's so cheap, I could literally buy everyone's meal in the restaurant, and it still wouldn't really hurt, right? And I just get to pick some table and pay for their food. It would be like buying somebody a gift, and they took the money they would have spent, and they bought whatever Amazon stock is going to be the next Amazon, right? At the and it just multiplies. right? Um, I'm going to tell you about a place that our gifts are multiplying. Um, One of the things I love about uh, the work that we get to do across the world is that there are places that because our economy is strong and our dollar is strong, it really multiplies what we get to do. And on this coming Friday, I will be headed back again to uh, the Colombia-Venezuela border. Uh, on my last trip, uh, I've told you a little bit about it, but we had almost a hundred pastors and their spouses come and join us. This is us at a restaurant called Spazia. Uh, we were not supposed to eat at that amazing restaurant. We were supposed to eat inside the church, but the church was so hot. Um, we, it had always been hot, but we built a kitchen and a bakery, and if you want to make something literally hotter than hell, build a kitchen and a bakery in it, and uh, and it was unbelievable. And... Um, and one of the things we heard from these pastors as we gave them 10 kilos of meat and the ingredients they needed to go back and make tamales is they were praying for a miracle. They were praying that they would experience something like what happened in John, where you just start passing around. Can you imagine being the kid that gave the fish and loaves to Jesus, Right. And here your gift just gets multiplied. And one of the things I love is whether or not really a miracle happens there. A miracle really happens for us because our dollar is so strong, we can do so much that literally just a few dollars goes a really long way. And Ecclesia, I hate to break it to you, you have more than a few dollars. We have more than a few dollars. God's called us to be really generous and what we're able to do and impacting people across the globe. And it was about a year ago that I sat in this room, and uh, in two different locations, actually, downtown in here, we had different uh, ladies in our church that have Venezuelan bra- backgrounds that gave me some de jamon. It's this beautiful bread. I wish I had some for you today, but they were all out at the bakeries around us. It's filled with ham. If you want good bread, fill it with ham, right? And with some olives and some raisins, and it's typical... Uh, at Christmas to have panda hamon or panda navidad, and, and uh, Ecclesia established this bakery where we've been baking uh, a lot of it, and we're literally watching these things um, multiply. And today, I want to invite you. Uh, well, and I also want to invite you to pray as we go back this week. We're looking at new opportunities. We're going to have Venezuelan pastors come, uh, some even all the way from Caracas and we'll be uh, looking at ways that we can strategically partner over the next year. We'll also have uh, friends and partners in from Living Water International uh, to get to look at some areas where some native tribal people are living along the border. They're living in really difficult conditions uh, in those places. Uh, um, They're living in these little shacks. They don't have access to clean water or hygiene or sanitation, and so we're looking at ways that we can help improve their health. Literally, everywhere you go, kids are running around. Uh, without clothes or the basic necessities. And um, I love being a part of a church that says, let's see the work that we do multiplied in these ways. And so today we're looking at a bunch of stories. We've been in the Gospel of John and we're looking at stories where Jesus performs a miracle. Many of these are miracles of multiplication. Um, Today we get to look at what is likely my favorite story in all of them. And it wouldn't surprise you um, because the first miracle hits close to home for me because Jesus turns water into and not just wine, like really good wine. And not just wine, but a crazy amount of wine. Literally, the low estimate is 150 gallons, right? Like not many people, there's a reason they don't serve wine by the gallon, right? There's a good reason, and yet when Jesus sees the party coming to an end, he does this amazing miracle. And yet today, I I, I wanna invite you to look at it, but look at it not just, it's a great story about wine and about uh, celebrations and about wedding, but I'd love for you to look at it as a story about our hearts. See, really what we see in these narratives is that Jesus leans into a place where there is something missing. Does anybody have anything missing in their life? He leans into places where we see um, there are things lacking, where we find emptiness. And then Jesus fills that void, that emptiness, but he does more than fill it. He like overflows it with more than we can imagine. So I wonder today if we could look at it not as a story about wine, but as a story about the way that Jesus fills those spaces that are empty and that we could contemplate together what are the empty places in our life. So as you look back, especially on 2019, I wonder if there are places that you say, there were some things lacking for me in 2019. Here I would just say like, I was lacking contentment in 2019. 2019. 2019 Contentment was hard to find, or trust, or joy. Anybody look back on 2019 and say I I was lacking in the loving relationships and experiences I would like to experience in my life. Or put another way, is there anybody that's like I had too much love in 2019? Anybody feel like it was an overdose of love? I'm really hoping 2020 has a lot less love in it. Probably not, right? None of us look back and think. We think, you know what? As I look to 2020, I'd like to see some places where I have emptiness. I don't know about you, but many of the places that I find that I feel empty, I feel there's a void, are places that at some point I have felt rejected. Some of us, it's really, it's really almost creepy, right? We, we can have places we were rejected as a child. We have, can have places we were rejected that we hardly remember. And they've created this void that we've been trying to fill that we're not even fully aware of. So I wondered today if I, um, I'm i a bit ashamed that I've waited this long. I've been preaching 30 years, and it's the first sermon I've ever preached and what I believe is an issue that almost every one of us, I would pose to say every one of us struggles with. And it's about how we see ourselves and the dysfunctional patterns we fall into. Um, many will label it something like codependency. And this is what codependency looks like. There are a number of definitions, but I'll give you one that I think is the simplest. It's when my self-worth equals my performance plus your approval. It's been fun and challenging preaching this sermon repeatedly because even as I preach this sermon, I realized I am codependent in the way that I preach, right? Because I am often, right? If a few of you fall asleep, I'm like, I'm done, like... Because in part I don't have your approval, which must mean my performance sucks, and then it all starts to spiral from there. Anybody else have that struggle? Be honest enough to say that's part—that's a real thing. And so, but the reality is that if you or I are basing what we think our worth is off of how we perform and how other people receive that performance, you can imagine life's going to be an ugly roller coaster. You—you will never, you'll never fill that void. You will never, and some of us, we've made a life of trying to defy it, but let me tell you today, you will never perform well enough. Let me break it to you. Not everyone will love you. Are you okay with that? See, I I grew up in a church where I think I was taught, I, I was told about Christianity, but I was taught codependence. That most of what it was was, are you okay with me? And if you're okay with me, then I'm okay. Anybody have relationships like that where you're constantly checking in and you just tell like, hey, you're not okay with me, are you? And you've, you feel like you need to do whatever it is until they are okay with you? Am I, am I the only one? Is somebody else not? And, and you just, I, if I just can get this right and this right and this right, then you're gonna be okay with me and then I'll feel okay. And something in your spirit isn't right until you can get to that place? And I just want to tell you today, not only is it an unhealthy way to live, it's an unchristian way to live. Other ways you might know you struggle with codependency is if you are almost magnetically attracted to people in extreme crisis. If just people where their lives are falling apart, it's your opportunity to swoop in as though you will fix them. I can just tell you, I spent a lot of my life some of you do this. It's even worse. You do this in your dating relationships. You look for the, the person who is the biggest disaster and think, I will date them and fix them. That is a really bad way to live, right? I'll just tell you as a pastor, I spent years. I thought it was my job to like pull people out of crack houses, that somehow I could force them to stop drinking, that I could create walls around them to protect them, and ultimately I had to realize, like, People make their own decisions. People make their own choices. And they have to live, and I have to live with, my own choices. So I wonder um, today, or put one other way, if you feel like you're addicted to being needed, you're at this place where you just, if someone needs you, it gives you meaning and purpose in the world. And so you create scenarios in which others rely or depend on you. It's another way to think about codependency. So what I want to do today is look at the story. It's a great story in John chapter 2. But I want you to imagine that in this narrative that that wine is not just wine. It's a symbol for a good life, a beautiful life. And it actually is in Scripture a symbol for a good life. They tell it where there is wine, there is abundance. So in John chapter 2, this is what it tells us. That three days later, I think coffee is also a symbol of something. It's not in the Bible, but it has to be. Somebody let me know what coffee is a symbol of. It tells us in John 2 that three days later, they all went to celebrate a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. It's one of my favorite places we get to visit um, as we go through. Just to imagine we're very close to where Jesus would have performed this miracle. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, was invited. And together with him and his disciples, while they were celebrating, the wine ran out. And Jesus' mother hurried over to to her son. You can almost sense Mary's urgency. And Mary says to Jesus, the host stands on the brink of embarrassment. There are many guests and there's no more wine. To which Jesus responds beautifully. He says, dear woman... Is it our problem that they miscalculated when buying wine and inviting guests? My time has not arrived. Now, I've often just read past this in this story. It's just part of Jesus' dialogue, and Jesus and his mom are going back and forth, and we all go back and forth with our mom. And I just, but I, I, I believe it's actually much more instructive than that. I think Jesus is saying to us clearly, right, if I'm Jesus and I made the whole world and I made the people that are getting married and I made wine and all of this and I can still look and being Jesus, I can sit in the room where there is a crisis. Anybody think of yourself being in a place where there is a crisis, right? And I'll just tell you, like things like Hurricane Harvey, they bring out the best and the worst in me because I feel like I'm made to tackle a crisis. And if there is a crisis, it becomes my crisis. And you know what Jesus teaches us in this passage? He's sitting in the room where there is a crisis, and he says, this is not my crisis. This is not my problem. So if Jesus can say, and Jesus is Jesus, and we're not Jesus, by the way, So if Jesus can say, this isn't my problem, then there are probably a million things that are not your problem. I'm curious, if you look back on 2019, how many of you can say, I stayed up late at night worrying about trying to fix someone else's problem? Or better put, is there anyone here that can look back on 2019 and you didn't spend any time or energy worrying about trying to fix somebody else's problem? Anybody that can say that in 2019? Because if you If you did, I'd like to know your secret. You should write a book, right? (laughs) Because many of us, we just take on other people's problems. And I wonder what it would look like in 2020 if we just leaned in and said, what if we focused on our own problems, our own struggles, and we realized there's just a lot that we can't fix. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not generous or kind. It doesn't mean we don't find opportunities to be helpful Jesus decided, I'm going to be helpful. But he also wanted to be clear, it's not my problem. I'm, I'm not responsible for fixing. Right, And I wonder if there are people in your life that you feel like you need to rescue. And what would it look like in 2020 to say, I want to be helpful to those people. But it is not my job to rescue them. So a couple of truths. That I want to point out to you in this passage. That's the first. That leaving behind codependency means we have to respond in new ways. We're a people made to act, not react. And what we often do in codependency, what we often do in our world is we're, we're waiting for somebody else's crisis, we're responding to other people's problems, and so then we fail to act and just do the thing we know we're made to do. What I want to invite you to think about in 2020 is what does it look like to be the person that wakes up this year and says, you know what? I have particular gifts. I'm put in a particular place in the world. I have particular strengths, and I'm going to live into those strengths, and I'm going to be the person that God made me to be despite criticism, despite drama, despite other problems. I'm just going to work the plan of who God made me to be. Melody Beattie, who writes a lot about codependency, says it this way, and I think it's beautiful and important, and maybe it's beautiful to me because it hits home for me. She says, codependents are reactionaries. They overreact. Anybody in that category? They underreact, but rarely do they act. They react to the problems, pains, lives, and behaviors of others. They react to their own problems, pains, and behaviors. But instead of being a people that are in that mode of reaction, what does it look like to just be the people that act out the, the plan, the gifts, the direction, the map that God has for us? So we wonder, like, how do you do that? And this is the best thing I can tell you. If you want to do that, what you need to do in 2020, what I need to do in 2020, is be the healthiest version of me that I can possibly be. Physically, spiritually, emotionally. Now, some of this comes down to like the simplest things. It means you do the basics, which are like eat, sleep, pray, right? Like, if you don't do those things, and you you could read a thousand self-help books this year, you could do all kinds, but if you just eat and sleep and pray, and by eat, I mean, we actually eat well. This is the thing I have to tell myself, right? I'll just eat what I wanna eat. What does it mean? We take care of ourselves. Lala Delia says it this way, and I think it's beautiful. She says, self-care is how you take your power back. Right? We live in a world that can feel so chaotic. I can sit here and go, I don't know what's going to happen with Iran, and I don't know what's going to happen with this or with that. There's all these places that feel out of control. I don't know what's going to happen with these people, because you know what? I can't seem to control anybody. Right? Anybody else trying from time to time? It doesn't seem to work, and I, I don't know how to get the response from them I long to get. But there is one person you can change, right? You know that. Who is that person? Yourself. The only person you can change. And in 2020, if we say, I'm going to focus on changing the one person I can truly affect, it would be a beautiful gift. Secondly, and this one's a hard one, but it's really an important one. We're a people made to love, right? not enable. See, one of the reasons that people stay in really bad addictions and bad behaviors is that there are usually a group of people around them enabling them to make that happen. They're actually helping them avoid the consequences of their bad behavior and they just keep doing it. And I just got to be honest with you, this is the really hard thing if you're a parent in the room, right? This is the really hard thing about being a parent because parenting is a codependency trap, It's actually a trap laid to turn you into a codependent because these little beings come to you and they are actually, in the beginning, totally dependent on you, completely dependent on you. But very quickly, the goal and the job is to make them not dependent on you, right? So, and that process is just naturally hard and painful, right? So I can remember what it felt like to our oldest is just she was ready to be totally independent at like a super young age. At five, like four or five years old, we got her to kindergarten and it's the first day of school. You're ready to walk around and meet the teacher. She's like, no, 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 I got this. I don't need you people, right? I don't, <laughs> just internally, you're like, but you're in kindergarten. Like, I want to meet your teacher. It just felt like this is too soon. This is too fast, right? But, you know, again... If your kid's in university, right, your kid's in high school, even in elementary, there there are places you have to let go, right? If you're calling your kids university professors, you're in trouble, right? Like, that's a problem. If you're trying to shield them from their own consequences, that's, that's trouble, Darlene Lancer says it this way. She says, allowing others to suffer the consequences of their own actions without enabling them is the best motivation for them to undertake the difficult task of change. Right? And the truth is, most of us know it in our lives. The things that brought us to change, we're having to face our bad decisions and the consequences of them, right? And that's just a, it's just a healthy part of life. But if we try to cushion that for our spouse, for our parents, for our children, it won't work well. Now, we can be there to comfort, to love, but we can never be that trampoline that catches them in the midst of those decisions. But the truth is, often um, we have turned Christianity into this um, cult of niceness that becomes about people-pleasing rather than about God-pleasing. And I just want to warn you, Ecclesia. I'm warning myself in this sermon that people-pleasing is dangerous in part because you won't ever please everyone. So it's totally unsatisfying, right? If it becomes your religion, people-pleasing, you will be so miserable. Or Tracy Malone puts it this way. She says, people-pleasing is a very dangerous lifestyle. In the end, you lose yourself to the needs of others. You you ultimately lose all sense of self and who God created you to be because you're trying to please people that can never fully be pleased with you. Let's get back to the the narrative in the Scripture, and then I'll share with you two more points, tell you a story, and we'll take communion. So what happens, right? Jesus, again, he says to Mary, dear woman, Please know, this is not my problem. This is not our problem. But Mary turned to the servants, and Mary said, do whatever my son tells you to do. Now again, Jesus made clear, it's not my problem, but I'm going to be kind because I'm Jesus, and I can, and apparently there's not a liquor store close by. (laughs) So he says, this is probably the easiest way. My time has not yet come, And here you go. So it tells us that in that area, there were six massive stone water pots that could be used to hold 20 to 30 gallons. They were typically used for Jewish purification rites. This were things like a mikvah bath. We would think of it like a baptism, right? A ritual cleansing, and yet you had to do it over and over and over again to be ritually cleansed. And Jesus' instructions were clear. He said, fill each water pot with water until it's ready to spill over the top. Now, no, this would have been a metaphor you'd hear often in the scripture, right? Filled and running over, right? What's it a symbol of? Abundance, right? God said, literally, just here's plenty, here's more than you could want. This, is, this would be uh, something that any Jew would be familiar with, right? It's part of, actually, it's one of my favorite parts of a Shabbat meal. When we, when we spend time in Israel, if you have uh, Jewish friends here in the States, as you share a Shabbat meal, one of the first things that happen is that the, the man of the house will take their favored wine goblet. He'll place it on the center of his plate. And then he'll take the bottle of wine and he'll pour the wine into the goblet until it spills over onto the plate. Right? And then one of the first things that has to happen before anybody can eat or do anything else, the man of the house has to take that goblet and, and drink the whole glass of wine. And that's when you know this party is going to get started. Right. <laughs> And, and then it just starts like singing and food and more wine and more food and more stories about God's grace and goodness. And I wonder, every time I'm there, I wonder like, I wonder why we're so depressed, why we lack a sinner. And I watch these people who just every Friday, they gather with people they love. They're reminded God's grace is abundant. His blessings are abundant. They share those stories. It's a gift. So when Jesus is saying this, he's telling them, get ready for abundance. Now I wonder, pause with me in the story for a minute, I wonder if the places where you have something missing, love, trust, acceptance, joy, contentment, what does it look like in 2020 to not just think, oh, I could have enough love to get by? Anybody else live with a scarcity mentality? My counselor, Dan Allen,er he says, sometimes you're like a camel. He says, someone will do something nice for you. You'll hold on to it for months to get you through. He said, what what does it look like instead to go, no, no, I'm just going to live in the abundance of love. Like for some of us, we've gone, is that even possible? Jesus is saying, it is. With me, it is possible. He keeps going. It's spilling over, right? (laughs) And then he said, then fill a cup and deliver it to the head waiter. And they did exactly as they were instructed. And after tasting the, the wine, water that had become wine, the head waiter couldn't figure out where such wine came from, even though the servants knew. And he called over the bridegroom in amazement. And the head waiter said, this wine is so delectable. Now, again, imagine you've had some some contentment, what if God brings you a contentment that's supernatural? It's the best contentment you've ever had. You're actually totally content with exactly what you have, and you don't want more. He brings you a joy that's better than anything else, right? What we find is that when God multiplies, he doesn't just multiply it in abundance, but also in the quality of what God gives to us. So I wonder, right? He says, literally, this is the... This is the most exquisite fruit of the vine. Why would you save the most exquisite fruit of the vine? A host would generally, and this is still true today, serve the good wine first. And when his inebriated guests don't notice or care, he would serve the inferior wine, right? This still happens at your house. I'll go over, you start with Caymus, you end with like a trapeci Malbec from Walgreens, right? <laughs> You're like, how do we go from that to that? Like, that's that's a big gap. Like, <laughs> Why couldn't we stay up here? Right? But you kind of go, well, it's the end. We're out of the good stuff, right? They said, nobody does this. Now, I don't know about you, but as you get a little bit older, anybody else have the tendency to think maybe the best is behind me? Anybody else have a tendency to go, maybe you'll never be that good again? What if this is a metaphor for our lives and God's saying, wait, What you've had so far you've just been drinking the cheap stuff like maybe it's gonna it's about to get really good some of you are like well I've been waiting a long time for it to get it still can get really good that God's ready to multiply it and abound it so what do we love in the what do we learn in this a couple of things that I want to share with you and we'll take communion I believe, Ecclesia, that this dysfunction, where we're going, I'm okay if you think I'm okay, is one of the most dangerous places to live because it fails to recognize that God is the one that tells us that we're okay. And this is what God says He says, You're not only okay, you're beloved. Hear this wherever you're at today, you are beloved. The Scriptures make it clear. In James 4.12, it tells us this way, Know this, there is, say it with me, There is one who stands supreme as judge and lawgiver. How many? One. He alone is able to save and to destroy, so who are you to step in and try to judge another? The Bible makes really clear there's one judge. There's only one person whose opinion actually matters as to your value and worth in the world. And it's God, the Father, the creator of all things, the one that made you. And the one that made you looks upon you, and I'm preaching to myself this week as well, looks upon me and says, you're not just okay, you're beloved And yet most of us feel like we live our life in a courtroom. And if there's a judge, there's probably a prosecutor. And there's somebody coming at us with accusations. Anybody else hear accusations, whether they're real or in your mind? And they just feel like they're coming at you over and over. And and in God's courtroom, it's very clear. Hebrews tells us there is a mediator. There is one who stands in that place. and, And it's Jesus. He says, this is why Jesus is the mediator in the new covenant. In the courtroom that you stand in, God's the judge, and Jesus is the lawyer slash prosecutor. Let me tell you, you're in good shape. Because Jesus and the Father are both speaking in unison. Right? You remember what the Father said over Jesus when he was baptized, right? This is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. This is my daughter, you could hear, whom I love. And whom I'm well pleased. Right? We hear again the ultimate verdict, right? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Now that doesn't mean perfect servant. None of you are perfect. I'm not perfect. But we know from scripture is that God has spoken over us that we are beloved so he tells us, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And through his death, he delivered us from the sins that had built up under the first covenant. And his death has made it possible for all who are called to receive God's promised inheritance. Right? That literally, our mistakes don't define us. Melody Beattie, who writes a great deal about codependency, says it this way. She says, we are lovable. Even if the most important person in your world rejects you. Hear this today. There are many here today that have felt rejected from a parent, from a spouse. Some even have had to cut off relationships with your own children for the sake of your health. And these are places of deep loss and pain. But hear the truth. It doesn't negate the pain. But hear what Melody says, and and the Scripture says it even better. We're still lovable, even if the most important person in your world rejects you. You are still real, and you are still okay. The Scriptures go much further. You're more than okay. You're beloved. You're beloved. And i got to tell you, Ecclesia, if we live from this place, this status that says, I don't need to please you, and I don't need to please my critics. I don't even need to please my boss. I'm not telling you to get fired. I'm just telling you, you don't wake up every day, right? You don't wake up every day evaluating your place and worth in the world based on what your boss thinks of you, right? It's not the thing that defines you. That if we live out of that space, there's a freedom that comes with it that is the freedom that Christians were made to live in. If we live as people pleasers, as people that want to please man, it will be painful and toxic. We won't sleep well. We won't feel well. Anybody else feel in your body how you internalize that stress when you're in that place? And when we are free from it, when we say, what matters is that God loves me, What matters is that he says, I'm beloved. We live in a different way. Lastly, then I'll tell you a story and we'll take communion. Um, Much of people pleasing is about fear. And this one I want you to hear. Be not afraid. It's the command you hear over and over and over again in the Bible. Be not afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't live in fear. Living life in fear is painful. Painful. And then I'd add to it, as you choose to abandon fear, just do this. This is how we're made to live. Just do the next right thing. Anybody else see the Frozen sequel over the holidays, right? Everybody seems to love it. I love the story. I felt like they wrote the music in like four minutes, but... (laughs) Um, but I thought the story was great. And I love this theme. I just love this theme of like, I can't control life. I can't figure everything out. I'm just going to do the next right thing. Just whatever it is that's in front of me, I'm just going to do it and I'm going to do it right. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't always do it right. And part of living into a healthy life and means you got to deal with the consequences, right? I've often... Uh, you know, I'm often in this place <laughs> celebrating something good that happens with the team I love here in Houston to play baseball. And, uh, and the last few weeks, many of us, right, we've been ter- it's like, it's not as fun to be an Astros fan right now, right? <laughs> Why is it not fun? Because they, they, they didn't do it right. They didn't do it the right way. I don't like it doesn't make me happy. They they didn't do it exactly the right way. Now, again, there's a lot of things a lot of us are not going to do the right way. And when we don't do it the right way, we're going to pay the consequences for not doing it the right way. And in some ways, right, having mistakes like that, they're good reminders for us. They're definitely good if you got kids to go, hey, kids, like, hey, that that doesn't pay off. That doesn't work. Let's not do it that way. You're you're not going to get it perfectly. But there's a clarity that comes to life with just saying, whatever is in front of me, I'm going to do my best to do it right. Tracy Malone says it this way, really simply, always do the right thing. And this often becomes our excuse, so I'm glad she said it. Despite the game someone else is playing. So often we go, I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing, but you don't know who I'm married to, right? I'm trying to do the right thing, but you have no idea how difficult my mother is, right? I'm trying to do the right thing, but I work in the most toxic environment you could possibly imagine, right? And over and over again, we got every example, and we just say, you know what, wherever it is, wherever you are, whatever their drama is, I'm just gonna do the right thing, the right and loving thing. And that that means abandoning those fears So she adds to it. She says, everyone has fears. It's the bravery of heart that triumphs over all fears. I got to tell you, Ecclesia, I've got a dream and a vision that we would abandon some of these dysfunctional patterns of codependency and people pleasing. And the ideas that our worth are based on what other people think of us. And then in 2020, we'd have a large community of people that just live in much healthier ways. I would also tell you these are really hard habits to break. They don't just fall off like that. But there's some foundational beliefs that we've talked about today that I think can truly transform us. This is what I can tell you from my experience now of pastoring Ecclesia for 20 years, and I probably could find this almost any place. But what I've learned as we walk together, uh, especially in the context of uh, people coming together in friendship and community, right? Right. uh, one of the things we've done often at Ecclesia is as we start a small group, people will share their story. And I hope many of you have had the opportunity to do that. It's a very profoundly therapeutic healing experience. And in the earliest years of Ecclesia, I used to get a lot of phone calls from people and they'd call and say, hey, I'm telling my story. And I'd go, what, are, you know, what meal are they going to serve? Maybe I'll come. And, um, and then they'd say, well, I'm not really calling to invite you. Um, But I'm just calling to ask because I'm going to tell my story and I really am pretty sure like I probably need to tell the PG version of my story, right? Like there's some things I need to leave out of my story. And basically what I found is every person was the same. Every person had this belief like if I really tell people everything, if I really know what I think, if they really know what I've done, if they know what I'm capable of, like no one will want to be my friend. And almost everybody had this idea that it was going to get rough in the room, right? People were going to get to place in their story, and they were going to start throwing the chairs over, and, you disgust me. So I've been to more than 100 of these, right? And you know, every time in the story, it's the same. The circle gets smaller. People start moving their chairs closer to the person. People start reaching out, putting their hands on them. And they're saying, I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. It even gets kind of weirder because then most people are like, man, I feel so much better now that I know how messed up you are, right? (laughs) Like, Phew, what a relief. And they don't mean it in a bad way, right? They just mean like, I know I'm a mess, and so somehow knowing that you're a mess helps me deal with my mess, right? Because my life's not easy and perfect. And yours isn't either. And I've told you this often, Ecclesia, but great relationships and friendships are never formed out of looking at someone and going, you were amazing and I am also amazing. We should be amazing together, right? People don't look and go, you're beautiful and I'm super beautiful. We should be friends, right? We look at people and go, wow, you're struggling in the same ways I struggle and maybe I could help you and you could help me. And maybe if we struggled together, the burden wouldn't feel so heavy. I can't fix you, and you can't fix me. But maybe if we tried to carry the load together, that it wouldn't be too much for either one of us. And I believe in 2020 that God's called us to live into that kind of community. I want to invite you today to communion, and communion is the opportunity, I believe, week after week, it's one of the reasons we do it every week, to abandon a life of people-pleasing and codependency. What you hear when you come to the bread is Jesus speaking directly to you. He says, this is my body, and it's broken for you. What's he saying? He said, I have laid down my very body for you. That's how much you are my beloved. This is my cup. It's my blood shed for you. What's he saying? He's saying, you're not defined by your failures and your worst moments. In fact, I don't see them. I've forgiven them. I've actually taken them on myself. Your failures, your sins, they now actually belong to me. They no longer belong to you. And so we take communion every week because I don't know about you, but I need to hear that every week. And every week I need to be reminded that I'm not defined by those failures, that Christ has taken on my failures, my sin, and that he looks upon me and says, you're beloved. Would you allow me a moment to pray for you and with you? And then we're going to celebrate communion together. Lord God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters today. I thank you for the chance that we have to gather with other friends and family and to be reminded that we are not what the world says we are that we get to live with a fierce kind of passion and independence because we get to live in this place that says we are defined by who you say we are and we are beloved. And God, I pray that for many of us in this room that we could leave behind some broken patterns, some unhealthy ways that we've been living, that you give us a new sense of joy, that just like the best wine that showed up at the end, that for us we'd move into a place and we'd say, wow, this, is, this kind of life where I don't need the approval of others and I rely on God, this is so much sweeter. It's so much better. Lord, I ask you to give us rest at night. That the accusations that torment us, the ideas that say we're not enough, the people that have spoken words into us that are untrue, that it would be like the sheetrock that's been covering the beauty of our lives, that it'd be ripped down and torn out and that the light of Your love and beauty would shine through. We ask You today to bless this bread. We believe it's a physical reminder that You love us profoundly. We thank You for this cup. We believe that it says to each and every one of us that our failures are no longer ours, that though we may not have done it exactly right in the weeks and months and years before, that we have an opportunity to begin with a clean slate and to do the next right thing. And so, Lord, we leave with that intention. May we receive your love well. We pray all of this together. And we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ekthesiahouston.org.